On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There'll be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You could even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit Amazon.com slash hiring day. That's Amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There will be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You could even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit Amazon.com slash hiring day. That's Amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Action Park Media. As we enter the year 2021, and now has been 24 years that the murder of Biggie has remained unsolved. There is no one that has done more investigative work as a journalist in this case than author Randall Sullivan. Randall first published the book Labyrinth in 2002. It told the complete story of Russell Poole's investigative work in the LAPD corruption that ended his career. In June of 2019, Randall then released Dead Wrong, a follow-up book to Labyrinth. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There will be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You could even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit Amazon.com slash hiring day. That's Amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. In reading Randall's new book, it's startling to see in black and white the immense amount of evidence that is still being hidden in this case. Randall had unique access to Perry Sanders and the vast trove of information he holds as it relates to the civil case against the city of Los Angeles and the LAPD. Rumors continue to swirl that Perry and his team are hard at work trying to possibly refile this case but the stakes with that might be too high. Randall agreed to sit down with me and Phil Carson for a wide-ranging conversation. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There will be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You could even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit Amazon.com slash hiring day. That's Amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Falling back into routine can be stressful. That's why Family Dollar has more to help you stay ahead of the class. Stock your pantry and save with snack time favorites like cereal, cookies, crackers, and Tyson frozen chicken. Family Dollar, helping you do more. The, the things that I think Phil and I have tried to do in looking at this story is show the general public the massive amounts of information and evidence that exist. And this isn't speculation. This is stuff that's written in documents. These are documents that exist. The first name I want to run by you that isn't a name that is talked a lot, and, and you do talk about him in your book, is a guy by the name of Kendrick Knox. Can you explain to people who Kendrick Knox is and why you think he's important to this story? Kendrick Knox was what was called senior lead officer in the West Valley Division of LAPD. They're, they're sort of a designated, I mean, they're not 
they don't have a rank like sergeants or anything like that, but they are like the very top cop in a division. And they do a lot of community interface and interaction. And he was dealing with all these complaints about the problems at a, a studio in Encino that had been leased by Shug Knight and Death Row Records. So you had a you know very suburban neighborhood with a lot of gangbangers parking their cars in their driveways and confrontations and you know so he thought he was just kind of walking into that to try to smooth relations between these two separate cultures and he found out that um, that you know LAPD officers were working uh, for death row and in and out of the studio and then what made that so significant is that he tried to proceed with that investigation. The moment he went public about it in the LAPD, his life got turned upside down. And he, not only was the investigation shut down, but he was basically scared into silence. All of the investigation that he'd done was erased, literally erased from his computer. Um, he was warned not to speak about it anymore. The only thing, only reason I know about it, and it's all come out, is that before this shutdown happened. He gave a copy of his entire file to Russell Poole, who gave it to me. Pretty incredible. And is it true that um, his hard drive at the LAPD was also wiped clean? Yeah. You know, he, he, he had a back injury, went away for a while, came back, and they'd already, they'd already told him the investigation was shut down and he wasn't supposed to speak about it to anyone. He wasn't allowed to have to even mention the subject. And he was getting some, you know, threatening, you know, he's having some threatening exchanges with officers who might be implicated. So he went on leave with his bad back. When he came back, um, the, the file that, you know, he didn't pull a copy of the file, but he had a hard, another one in his office that was gone. All of his evidence that he collected was gone, but what really scared him was when he went on the, the senior lead and officer computer where all of his files had been digitalized and it was all wiped clean. You know, when I first read Dead Wrong, I had this visceral reaction of how is it possible that all of this information exists and yet we sort of stand here today in 2021 without this being solved. So some of the questions I'll, I will ask you are sort of moments in your book where I read and, and shook my head. One of those is, is we, we do know Fred Miller was Russell Poole's partner at the uh, LAPD's robbery homicide division. And you can correct me if I'm wrong about my analysis on this. Fred Miller was a guy who kind of, you know, would tell Russ to like, just fall in line. Like you don't want these problems. Then come to find out at the civil trial, when Fred Miller testified, is it correct that he, he testified that towards the end of his career, he felt that he wanted to build a case on Suge Knight and the evidence was there to build a case on Suge Knight as it relates to the murder. Yes. In fact, he took it to the district attorney and completely turned down. Well, he had to go through his supervisors to take it to the district. He couldn't do that directly. So he didn't get to actually speak to the district attorney's office, but he was told by his supervisors that you were almost there, but not quite there in terms of arresting Shug. And, uh, but, you know, at the same time, he was getting, you know, warned that, you know, you're stepping into a minefield here and do you really want to do this? He actually Miller ended up having a little more loyalty to Russ Poole than a lot of people thought. He, you know, he, he believed Russ had done a good job and was, you know, an earnest, honest detective. And I think that Miller was actually a little more of a decent guy than I initially imagined him to be. And uh, so he, you know, he did take that one last shot at it, swing at it, trying to get uh, charged. And but when they told him no go, he just backed away. You know, we both have spoken to Kenneth Boagney in the in the story that he tells. There is a part of the story I wasn't aware of, and that is you you have reported that Boagney went as far as offering to wear a wire on Rafael Perez inside um, jail. He offered this to LAPD investigators who seemingly turned Boagney down. Correct. That is absolutely correct. Well, that's what Boagney says. I mean, but there was a, a LAPD officer who was sort of the liaison in the you know board of rights hearing where uh, Boagney first appeared, where he first testified publicly about all this, and he confirmed that that had happened to me. 
Another fascinating uh, character in all of this is Detective Steve Katz. Katz with hidden files in his desk. Talk me through just your analysis of Steve Katz and these hidden files in a locked drawer. This alone to me, it's still, I think, how this has not completely reopened the case, if not, you know, shattered and brought down the house. I, I don't know. But what's your what's your overall at this day analysis of Steve Katz? Well, well, I mean, you know, at the time of the discovery, it was sort of a bombshell and it did result in a mistrial. And, you know, the, the city and, and LAPD were sanctioned a million dollars and, you know, and for the time they'd wasted, of the, uh, you know, hiding this. And you know, so a new trial was supposed to happen. I mean, there was no doubt what happened. It was, you know, as the judge said at the time, this is like pages and pages of documents and all of the things that somehow he lost or forgot about. That was his story. They were in this file were things that implicated LAPD officers in Biggie's murder. So, you know, it was pretty obvious to the judge that this was not just an accident. And that was, you know, why the fine was so large. And But the LAPD essentially took the position, and the person I'd really like to hear from about this, how he could possibly justify it, is William Bratton, who took over uh, the LAPD later, but he went along with the story that um, Katz had just, you know, forgotten about this stuff and was just an oversight, and, you know, and the poor guy was, you know, being crucified for what was just a you know, bit of carelessness. And they, they kept trying to sell that story, and they never had to really explain it to anyone because, well, in large part because they you know, never held it to account by the media in Los Angeles or any of the other, uh, you know, any of the other institutions, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, District Attorney's Office, or any of the other people that could have gotten involved and taken a good look at this. But it was really a lesson to me in how, how, how much power the LAPD has and how it reaches into so many other Parts of the government, and uh, but also you know, in civilian life too. I mean, people are do not want to cross the LAPD. Hey, Randall, sure. within those documents that were found um, inside of Steve Katz's desk, uh, were there any photos that was that was part of that, or was it all just strictly um, like you know documentation of things? You know, well, well, what was what was found was sealed. So all I ever really knew, other than what may have been leaked to me by some people, was uh, the judge's summary of what it was. So you know, I, and all, all that was described to me were uh, um, you know documents and paper recordings. So, so I'm, I'm just curious that I'm just curious of some of the photos that I originally saw in the LAPD uh, murder file, as well as did another FBI agent that was with me, and then they somehow disappeared yeah. from the murder file. And we then documented that we not only saw these pictures, but a signed letter from my supervisor uh, to Katz and the LAPD specifically asking to see any photos, but in particular, these certain photos that we had seen. And we never got and, and Katz denied ever, ever having those. I'm just curious if yeah. those photos were, were taken out of the murder. We know they were taken out of the murder book, but were they stashed as part of these documents? that were being hidden by cats because we, we never got an answer. We just were told, no, those photos that you saw outside the Peterson that, uh, you know, that, that showed, you know, that had Mac, Perez, Amir, uh, Big Gene, uh, Puffy, that, uh, that those photos didn't exist when, <laughs> which is just ridiculous because we know they existed. We saw them. Um, I don't think, I don't think people have ever found those photos. And I'm wondering, they may be part of that sealed documentation then. I mean, does that make sense? It's conceivable, Phil, but I, you know, it's also conceivable that they just disappeared them. I mean, I know that's what happened to the photographs of uh, Mac and Perez with Michelle Parks, Chief Parks' daughter. That that photograph was made to disappear. In fact, an officer—that's crazy. Has come, yeah. An officer has come forward to say that you know he was the one assigned to make it disappear. It's amazing. You write about when Perry Sanders goes to question Puffy. In the room that day are two officers from LAPD's risk management division that come along for yeah. that particular. Yeah. Here's what I feel about LAPD's risk management. I feel that that was an area of the LAPD where they buried the bodies. 
And I might be wrong about that, but I feel it was an area that could be controlled by a handful of people, i.e. a guy by the name of Sal Piscopo and a few others. And that's where they really controlled the, the, the documents or these the evidence that they didn't want public or they didn't want anyone to see for that matter. How do, what do you feel about LAPD's risk management? And, and this particular, it just, it just struck me as odd as why is risk management there when Puffy's being questioned? I think you're absolutely right about that. It's probably the most secretive part of the LAPD. It's kind of like internal affairs, only even more, you know, narrower and more targeted. I mean, the, their whole point, risk management's job is to protect the LAPD, to protect the LAPD from any exposure, legal exposure, or, you know, litigation exposure. Um, supposedly, you know, they're supposed to find all of the evidence and process it and, you know, bring it forward. But, you know, everybody knows that's not really their job. Their job is to do whatever they can to filter it so that, you know, nothing damaged to the LAPD gets through. And, you know, if you get that gig, if you're on that unit, you know, you're, you're on the, you know, track to, to, you know, promotion and, you know, high rank, just as with uh, IA, although this is even more elite. So most of those people who get that kind of a position aren't going to jeopardize careers that are, they know are flourishing and that have a, you know, a big back end. So that's, but it's, it's really impenetrable. I mean, I've had some IA people leak me some stuff, but I've never had any of those risk management people give me the time of day. So that tells you something. Sure. And the next document I'm going to talk about, I can actually email it to you so that you can you can look at it. But I have a few contexts, and I wanted to read you something that I'm I'm curious about what your thoughts on it. It's a legal filing that in January of 2001, the LAPD instituted a formal internal affairs investigation bearing LAPD internal affairs number CF010190. In this IA, the LAPD itself alleged that Mac and Perez conspired to murder and assisted in the murder of Mr. Wallace. Um, have you ever heard of this in LAPD internal affairs report? Have you seen it? Yeah. It obviously exists. What's your analysis of that? I have a copy of it. Basically, that, that document is, you know, damning as that looks. They would, this was what they used to basically bury the, at the what surfaced out of the Boagni investigations. Boagni and Felipe Sanchez, the two inmates who had been, you know, in jail with uh, uh, Perez and reported what they'd been told. So they had no choice to acknowledge that there had been an accusation, especially after the well, actually, before the mistrial. But, you know, once it was on the record, they had to acknowledge that there had been an accusation that Mac and Perez and um, I think Sammy Martin um, were involved in uh, Day's murder. So, but, but if you read through the whole thing, they did absolutely nothing. I mean, their, their explanation is, yes, these accusations were made, but they were dismissed. And then the reason why, basically, because we didn't try to, you know, investigate them. Their explanation for why their investigation didn't go anywhere is because they didn't do any investigating. It's almost comical. Again, because you've showed me that that document, that that document exists. Everybody out there now knows it exists. And what the hell are people doing about it? I I don't Nothing. get it. It, 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 it. it was hidden. You know, it did surface during the lawsuit. Um, it was something that like it was found. It was one of those things that after the mistrial and they were, the LAPD was really under pressure and somehow word of, of, that it must exist got out. So the LAPD produced it the last second, I mean, months after they should have. And it was a, you know, it caused a, you know, the, the judge was very upset. I mean, this is obviously something you've been hiding from us. And, it, you know, it got on the record. But the problem was that, you know, the, the case itself was being basically sidelined and shut down by the LAPD. It's, I mean, it's amazing. They, the LAPD shut down this federal uh, lawsuit. You know, they, they shut down the U.S. attorney's offices investigation. You wouldn't think a municipal police department would have that much power, but they did. That document does exist. I mean, like, like I said, Randy, yeah, you got a I, copy. I, I, Don I, has a copy. I, I, I've seen it. It, it, it. Everybody out there needs to know. This is an internal LAPD official document written by LAPD that exists. That That's a given now. So either one of two things has to happen. One is LAPD has to say it doesn't exist. It's fabricated, which which they can't do because 
It was filed in, in court under seal. So we know it does exist. So the only other option is do something about it. You can't just ignore it. It's like saying, yeah, well, but, we, we but, know but, who committed this murder, but we're not going to do anything about it. The fact is, Phil, they can't ignore it. They are ignoring it. No, because there is but, no agency. Nobody is putting any pressure on them to, to act on it. And the lawsuit was really was the only avenue you know, to compel the LAPD to face it. But I got to say, I mean, the complicity of the Los Angeles Times in this is that, you know, if, if there'd been some media attention, if they'd reported it, if they'd actually done their job, then, you know, that might have you know, shown a bright enough light on this to compel some action. But the Times completely ignored it. Didn't even, I mean, they knew about it, but they did not put one word in the newspaper about this document. I'm going to assume, based on the assumption that a vast array of of different people in different organizations of different levels have have not only listened to this podcast, but now know about this document that exists. And in fact, Don on a couple of occasions now has even provided the uh, the case file number. But for nobody to follow up on something like this is it's I, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's 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 beyond I, comprehension. It really is. When I read it, I was so flabbergasted. I mean, the, what flabbergasted me was they acknowledge this investigation. We've opened this investigation, and then they say we found nothing because we didn't look for anything. They basically say that. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely it's amazing. Silly. The second thing is that in the document it says on July first, two thousand five approximately 14 to 16 IA files regarding Mac, including the Mac Wallace murder IA, were removed from internal affairs by LAPD risk management employee officer Sal Piscopo and concealed in a cabinet in risk management. How, how did the task force that was created in whatever it was, 2008, 2009, or whatever, with 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 Katie and all the other LAPD and and uh, I think the FBI and DEA was part of that. Did they not? Did they not have access to this document? Uh, they, they, had no, so, they had no access because I mean, they didn't it, even know it existed. Correct. Look, Katie may have somebody may have told him. Who knows with Katie? But the fact is that his assignment was to, you're not going to look at any, any of the that implicates LAPD officers in this murder. And, and you're not going to even, you're not going to get it. You're not going to look at it. You're not going to consider it. You're going to find some alternative theory of this case that doesn't involve LAPD officers. And Kading took that assignment. And, you know, it's, and that's why it's so funny to me when he shows pictures of his vast, you know, file cabinets of evidence, that it doesn't have any of the most important evidence in it. You know, I asked him, well, did you have the interview with Eugene Deal or Kendrick Knox affidavit? or his investigation or you know, all of the stuff that's the most important evidence in the case, he's never seen any of it, including the stuff. Well, that, that's why it's just, I mean, the whole, and, and, and again, this isn't, this, <laughs> I don't want to turn this into a Greg Katie bashing, but that that's what's so okay. mind-boggling to me is, is <laughs> he never reached out to Russ Poole. He, he never reached out to me. I was still an FBI agent back when they were doing this. And the, the interesting part is I had, an entire, the entire case file of Russ Poole. It's documented that, uh, you know, I can talk about it now because he's deceased, but he was an FBI informant and we had his entire case file. And it's funny how the LAPD wiped clean his entire case file, but the LAPD didn't know that Russ Poole was working with me. And then I had his entire case file. And it only somehow when it leaked out, that's when the LAPD said, oh, shit, we can't have Agent Carson testify because we know that he's seen all of Russ Poole's work. We know what Phil Carson has done as well on top of what had already been done by Russ Poole and, uh, and the LAPD investigation. And that's one of the reasons why when they found out that I was uh, put on a witness list, that they said, no, we, we cannot afford to have him get up there and testify because we know what he knows because we wiped these files clean and now there's well, no yeah. record. So Katie has never even seen, and this is, this is the one thing that kind of, it does get my, uh, get underneath my skin is when, when, when Katie says, uh, or he just tries to discredit Russ Poole, or he says that, oh, that's, that's old and tired. Well, yeah, that's the truth though. 
and sometimes when, when, when the truth, it's the truth today, it, it is tomorrow, and it's going to be the truth 5, 10, 20 years from now. So I guess the alternative is just to make up some bullshit narrative and say, hey, here's something new and different. Why don't we go ahead and push this narrative and, uh, and write a book and do a TV series about it, which is a, just a well, joke. It, well, it worked for Caving because it worked for the LAPD. The LAPD... Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't think they think highly of Greg Kading, but he served them. No, they don't. By what he did, he did by by his investigation and his book. So they're not going to cross him because he's he's basically covering their asses. And, I just don't you know, understand. In terms, of, in terms of you being on the, I mean, I'm telling you, I've talked to people, you know, who knew that if Phil Carson gets on the stand, we are dead. You know, the the city of L.A. is going to be on the hook for. Who knows? Maybe a billion dollars. Certainly. Yeah. Well, they 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 came to the FBI and talked to me and all my bosses. Um, they actually reached out to me and I set up the meeting and they came over and that's exactly what they said. It's exactly what's documented. And I'm just I'm still just blown away why people out there and I'm not just saying Greg Kate. I'm just saying other people as well keep trying to shoot down uh, Russ Poole's work. The guy was a stellar detective. Um, he did he, he did great investigative work, not only on the on the Biggie case, but on on several other homicide cases, which is exactly why he got chosen to investigate the uh, the Biggie murder. And 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 it's and it's factual. These things are documented, and I'm not saying just documented by Russ Poole. I've gone out and I've not only corroborated some of that stuff, but then I was able to take things further because of the resources I had. And was able to find more evidentiary um, things that have been documented. And I just don't understand why some people out there keep saying, oh, no, this is an old and tired narrative. This isn't correct. It's just bullshit. It's a joke. It is 100 percent correct. And I don't understand why people that have never seen all the evidence have never seen the work of the FBI, have never seen the work of Russ Poole, continue to shoot down the theory of LAPD's involvement in orchestrating and obstructing not only the FBI case, but their involvement in the murder. It's it's mind-blowing to me that people just sit back and just now accept that sometimes because I, that's what LAPD wants. I, I, I just yeah. I don't get it, man. It goes against well, everything that law enforcement stands for. Well, it's just the case, you know, Phil, where the powers that be, you know, basically, I mean, there was a lot of collusion. It was, you know, you could, you could call me a conspiracy theorist if you like, but there was a lot of collusion between these different agencies and institutions who were all, all of them were involved in it initially. I mean, it was sort of a cascading thing. There were mistakes made at the beginning. There were lies told or, or small cover-ups, you know, made. But they were connected to larger and larger events, and the whole thing just swelled. And by the time you know they realized that you know there's this tidal wave looming over us, we just have to get out from under it, and you know any way we can. And uh, Keating offered them you know a convenient out. You know he's got a you know the the, the killer is conveniently dead. The the you know his source is a somebody who was you know, given immunity from another crime where she would have gone to jail for a long time. And, uh, and Suge Knight, the one person, you know, you, okay, if, if you, you made a deal with her and you, and, and uh, Poochie's dead. So, uh, you know, what about Suge Knight? I mean, that's who is behind it all, right? And usually when an LAPD detective solves a murder, they go out and arrest the guilty party, but he never arrested Suge. And he really can't explain it. Yeah. And I think that just to put another Another person into the mix is Russ Poole came to the conclusion. Phil, you came to the conclusion. And then Sergio Robledo also came to that same conclusion. So you have three investigators and then you have Kading on the other side. And, and that, to me, has always been the nail in the coffin when it comes to this. Is So you're saying three of you, three of your credibilities are shot. Three of you are, are, are incompetent. I, I, it, and, and if you look at the track records of the three individuals, Poole, Carson and Robledo, it's almost, they're almost impeachable, you know? I, I, I think that that's where the conversation ends for me, you know? All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. 
Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. Yeah, well, I mean, look, if Kading had actually looked at the evidence if he if he if he'd actually examined Russ Poole's case or Phil Carson's you know investigation and you know disproved it or found holes in it or said there's something wrong with it, but he did not do a damn thing to look into any of that. So that when he says that you know oh I you know I proved we proved that was not you know not the case, he didn't prove a thing. They didn't even try. They made no attempt to investigate the possibility. Do you ever think he'll have a? Uh a crisis of conscience at some point or, or, or just come off of this um, bullshit that he still. Katie, you talking about? about? Yeah. (laughs) I I got my opinion. What's your opinion? (laughs) My opinion is that, you know, you know, even if Katie had a conscience, but I'm not sure he does, but, but if he did, he's still so invested, so deeply invested in this narrative. Exactly. It's It's made him. So, I mean, how does he ever come back from that? And, and if he did, then he'd have, then he'd face the wrath of the LAPD because he, they, you know, right now they will protect him. They have his back, you know, because he's their boy. He's, he's, he's put out the story they want out there. Sure. Uh, another piece of evidence, um, Randall, is um, that I find kind of interesting, and I wanted your thoughts on this. Edward Henry, who was the stepbrother of, detect- of Detective Stephen Katz, told LAPD detectives that Katz had told him that he was aware of information and documents implicating individuals associated with the LAPD in the murder of Christopher Wallace. Um, Henry advised that LAPD uh, or Katz had stated such materials had been placed in the forgotten file, that the materials would stay in the, in the drawer, it would be a cold case for the duration, um, and something to the effect of, you know, fuck Biggie. Um, he's going to be in the drawer for a while. 
this was actually also this was a, actually not only a statement. This was a recorded uh, interview with Ed and Henry's stepbrother. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Actually, this is new to me, and I, I mean, it sounds pretty significant. But so many things are. It's, it's one more you know amazing revelation that somehow doesn't you know blow the lid off this thing. I'll run one more thing by you and to see if you um, have ever heard this uh, also. And again, I am not putting this forth as if this is 100% true, but I, I will just say that this exists and these things exist on audio and in paper um, that the LAPD knew since 1999 that David Mack confessed to being at the scene of the murder on the night of the murder. In the LAPD's paraphrased interview of an individual named Benny Keys, who had been incarcerated with Mac, stated that Mac indicated he was a member of the Blood Street Gang. He saw pictures of Mac wearing red. Have you ever heard of, 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 of this individual, Benny Keys? I have, and I do have a copy of his statement. Uh, and that came out fairly early, but it was another thing that just seemed to sort of disappear. It actually, the LAP did, just like that uh, IA report we were referring to earlier, it was one of those things that the LAPD finally came forward with after the mistrial, when, and only because the lawyers heard about it from somebody and, and uh, demanded it specifically, and then the LAPD pretended to look for it in the forgotten evidence file or whatever it is, and, and then finally produced it. Sure. The, the next thing I, I'd like, well, you to just also explain of what happened in the civil trial is here is another little paragraph I want to read for people to understand. It says that the city itself has engaged in a wide ranging scheme to conceal virtually every piece of evidence which linked LAPD officers with the homicide at issue. Do you know how much, and I know that, that Perry is a, a friend to all of us. How difficult was it for Perry Sanders to be given discovery in this case, which is just traditional and, and when you do a civil trial? Well, they didn't know how much was being hidden from them, you know, up to the time of the mistrial. But remember that right after the mistrial, the LAPD created Operation Transparency, which was you know, Greg Kading's task force. And so once that the purpose of that investigation wasn't just wasn't even mainly to come up with an alternative theory that would that the cops were involved. What it did was it gave LAPD the right to claim that there was an ongoing investigation and, and the, the case was about to break open. And they used that argument repeatedly in federal court to withhold evidence from the from the uh, attorneys, from Perry and the other attorneys. And uh, the judges, two different judges, including the one who made the mistrial ruling. You know, they bought it, you know, because uh, because, you know, they, they didn't want to disrupt or overturn or expose. You know, it was like if you if we get this information, we will destroy this investigation. We'll jeopardize the lives of informants, et cetera, et cetera. So they went along with that. And as soon as the uh, case was uh, you know, terminated, I mean, we should talk about what, you know, what really happened there, too. But almost immediately when the case was dismissed, like a, two weeks later. Operation Transparency was disbanded. The whole thing was shut down. It only existed as a way to withhold evidence from the lawyers representing the Wallace estate. And and I do think that that is important. What you just stated for for people to really understand the what transpired to get to that point. Biggie's mom, uh, the estate, and Perry they sue the city for wrongful death. And they are, is it fair to say, about a week from going to trial? Um, they, yeah, they were on the brink of trial. A trial date hadn't been set because, for one thing, you know, they kept hearing that there was this new evidence and they wanted to get a look at it. They were being put in the position of, you know, proceeding to trial. You know, all the lawyers explained this to me, and it is very lawyerly, but we can't go to trial not knowing what other evidence there is and what they might bring forward. And then it just coincided really with Valetta's exhaustion. You know, she'd won the mistrial. She felt she'd been vindicated. She was being treated for cancer. You know, Biggie's children had, you know, been growing up with this as, you know, their reality. And she didn't want them to have to live with it anymore. She didn't want the stress of it herself. So she she went along with the dismissal. If it was the, the, the dismissal was, you know, it wasn't like the case was over. 
initially, at least it wasn't, it was that um, we can refile at any time up to the time that the kids turn 21. And, uh, and that, you know, that was written into the order. So at that time it was like, well, let's wait. And by then, you know, maybe Greg Hating and his people will actually solve the case or, or, uh, or, you know, something will happen and we can go forward. But, you know, that never happened. And, and the trial was never picked up and really nothing changed until Dead Wrong was published. And, and, uh, and now we'll see. I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, too, from here, that they can still refile the case because it was dismissed without prejudice, but LAPD still does not have to turn over everything. Is that correct? Not, not now. What ha- you know, the case has been dismissed now, and, and the statute of limitations has expired. So the only way that you can reopen a case like that, and it's very hard to do, is if you can prove that evidence was intentionally concealed from you, and that was why the publication of Dead Wrong you know, was what opened this back up again is because they they saw, especially in, you know, my interviews with you were a big part of it, that, you know, there was a lot of stuff hidden from us. There were all these machinations we had no idea about, and and that is a basis for reopening it, maybe. Exactly, which means because of all the information that was withheld that is talked about, that is that that gives you the basis or the foundation for refiling the case, correct? Yeah, I don't don't understand then. It's very rarely happens. A case that's been dismissed and the statute of limitations has expired. It's only happened, I think, like once or twice that a case has been allowed to be reopened and refiled on that basis. That information was hidden. And there is a path, but it's a real, it's a narrow path. It's complicated. You know, without getting into things I maybe shouldn't say, but I mean, for for the lawyers to file it, they are putting themselves at risk because they know for a fact that they've already been told that the LAPD and the city of Los Angeles are going to come back at them and, and sue them for suing. The, you know, they're going to sue the lawyers for suing the city and, and the police department if they try to reopen it. So they'd be putting you know themselves in tremendous jeopardy. But, you know, it's not it's not, for, you know, right now it's pending. I honestly, you know, I, you know, I talked to Perry Sanders today and I can, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know that that is probably the only possible path to some sort of justice in this case. In the course of trying to achieve justice that a lawyer could actually be sued for filing, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So basically, yeah. if, if Perry and his group do not refile all the evidence that has been hidden that people know exists, but it's locked nobody in a vault. Can see. It's locked in a vault. Locked in a, exactly. We know it exists, but nobody can look at it. Is basically just going to just go away, and and nobody will ever take a look at it. I mean, that's in a nutshell. That's that's what's going to happen, then, right? That, that pretty much, yeah. I mean, I, I don't see any other avenue. Uh, I mean, I, I, maybe the FBI has some path that I, can, I don't know about, but I don't think so. I think that uh, unless, you know, these lawyers are able to find a way and have the nerve, and because uh, I know, you know, they've got additional evidence, you know, that we haven't even talked about. In addition to all of that, though, and the fact is, though, if they put you on the stand, you dead, just by yourself, you, you're going to win the case. But they have tons of other stuff. They, if the case ever gets in front of a jury, I'm, you know, there's not even a shred of doubt in my mind or any of their minds that you know the city of LA will be on the hook for at least a billion dollars and many and many heads. But I mean, the documents thing. that are in that are under seal, locked in a vault somewhere in the federal courthouse. Is there a time limit? Um, you know, it's like whatever. You know, when the the federal government decides to declassify something. And, it, and and after 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or whatever, and then it becomes public knowledge and people are like, holy shit, you know, but nobody knows about that until, <laughs> is, is that what this is? No, I don't think is there's there like, even a ticking clock. I, I don't even think there's a ticking clock on this. I think it could stay, you know, in that, that vault. For, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any mechanism forced it uh, out into public well, that, view except, yeah. except the losses. So... All of the dot, all of the discovery, like the things that we talk about, um, that was handed over to Perry, 
right? Those documents as it stands still today are under federal seal, correct? Yes, they are. Okay. And that gets me to my next question because you do you do have an, a, a pretty interesting moment in your book, and it's a it's a quote from Perry Sanders, and Perry Sanders says when and I don't know if this is still the case when the proceedings are concluded, Perry Sanders promised that all evidence gathered without exception will be donated to a local public library so the public will be able to access this information without having to rely on the LA Times spin. Yeah, he did say that. Oh, he was, yeah, he was, I can, I talked to him that day, I remember it, and he was so furious. But the fact is, that'll be all the information in Perry's possession, all that was ever turned over by the LAPD or that they acquired by some other means, but it isn't the stuff locked in the vault. Perry doesn't, you know, he's not seen that either. Even outside of all of this discovery that they got caught hiding, like let's call it the cat stuff, let's call it the Boagney material, the Mac sort of uh, uh, personnel files, all of this, it's, it's, it's the contention that there's even more shit that's hidden? Oh, there's a lot, of, there's a lot more shit that's hidden. Everything that Operation Transparency dug up, everything that came in from the LAPD to be reviewed by the judge before it was given to the defense. And the judge judge agreed that, all right, this can be held, you know, as long as the investigation is ongoing. And then what happened, you know, that judge who probably would have ruled at some point that, okay, this has gone on long enough, turn it over. She got sick and died, and the new judge was put on the case, and that judge ruled in favor of the LAPD across the board. The, the irony is not lost that it was called Operation Fucking Transparency. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think I'll, I'll just pose this last question because I think I have my analysis. And, I, and, and you did mention it and say that. I mean, with this narrow path, and, you know, I, I've, I've talked to Perry in the last month or so, and it's always him saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And I think for Phil and I, and I think for anyone who's not a lawyer, probably sits there and goes, well, what are you talking about? Like, look at this fucking evidence. But then you realize there's nuances to this of the legal system that we have no idea, right? Because Perry and and Rob Frank and these guys, this is their geniuses in this, right? They are. But 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 even they, I mean, they they need a, a major civil rights firm. You know, they need a partner. In terms, you know, which would be a major civil rights firm, and a lot of them have been really leery because they'd be sued too. They'd risk being sued too. They would, you know, they would risk you know huge financial jeopardy. And there's no doubt that the city and the LAPD would try that. So you, the, the first hurdle is the only one that is really in the way. If they get over that hurdle with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that rules that okay, this there it's clear there was a lot of important evidence hidden that could have made a difference in this case. And it's enough, it's convincing enough that we're going to reopen, you reopen this lawsuit. And is there a precedent for the situation Perry or anyone else for that matter has found themselves where, where they in bringing a civil lawsuit could also then be sued for, for oh, yeah. violence? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That happens. I mean, you know, they're called flaps. They're basically, you know, because they're supposed to deter, uh, you know, uh, frivolous or malicious. In this case, it would sure it would be malicious losses. Um, but I mean, you know, they'd be facing the the resources of you know the entire city of Los Angeles, uh, you know, and with all the lawyers they could hire uh, to to you know sell that story. So you know that risk is it's a large risk. I you know what I know of the evidence, you know, and I know there is there is even more evidence that you know we can't even talk about now. But you know that would I think overwhelm you know anyone who heard it I, mean, I think the case would be a absolute slam dunk in front of the jury it wouldn't even be close it'd probably take five minutes but um you can't get that in front of a jury unless you get it past the ninth circuit court of appeals which is very concerned about the precedent they'd be establishing you know these are it's a complex legal position to them and they've it's only happened a couple of times but there was i'm told a supreme court ruling that they think supports what they'd be doing, and uh, but it's never it's never happened before the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit has never ruled to the, a case that's been dismissed and is 
past the statute of limitations can be reopened because of you know discovery of evidence that have been hidden. But it is legal legally possible. There are there's language in the law that would allow it to happen. But the standard is really high. Uh, Phil, I actually have a question for you. Funny enough, I thought I ran out of it after having talked to you for, <laughs> sure. for so long. What's preventing an FBI agent from calling Perry Sanders on the phone and saying to Perry, I would I would love to see every single shred of evidence that was given to you and handed over to you in, in discovery? Um, well, what's, is there anything preventing that from happening that would then lead them to be able to pursue a case? Not that I know of. No, I don't think anything's stopping it from happening. But again, one of the things that I, I talked about in, uh, in one of the earlier episodes on the podcast was because of the knowledge that I had from the Rampart case, the Palmeros case, um, the Mac uh, bank robbery case, um, and then the Biggie case, it was, it was a culmination of all that information. And, I, and, and again, understanding when I, when I took all that institutional knowledge from those cases, put it together in like a, I don't know, like a 10 or 12 page communication and gave it to my bosses. And then they all read it. We, the FBI doesn't open up this case, a federal case, unless all my bosses sign off on it and understand that by signing off, they are saying that, yes, there is something here and and it involves the LAPD, um, you know, orchestrating and eventually obstructing this case. But I don't I don't open up a case by myself. And so they took a lot. They took a look at everything that I wrote up and they said, absolutely run with it, which right there speaks volumes. I can't tell you how much that speaks. And so for another FBI agent, if they wanted to to take a look at this. They've got they've got my case file there. They've got my prosecutive report there. Um, they've got Russ Poole's case file there. They've got everything right there. Um, but they're just going to have to spend a lot of time also getting to know those other cases that I mentioned to get a full understanding of everything, um, because this was not some isolated incident by uh, isolated, you know, police officers orchestrating it. If there's a pattern and it's all documented based on these other cases that uh, actually came to fruition. I mean, there were um, prosecutions in Palmeros. There were prosecutions uh, in Rampart. There were prosecutions in the uh, bank, uh, the Mac bank robbery. Um, so this isn't some he said, she said type thing. And it's all there. It's pretty voluminous, I can tell you that, um, and it just would take it would take uh, probably a few agents to really dig their heels in and, and, and dig into it. But again, I think one of the things it sounds like that that they would possibly run into is trying to get some of this stuff from LAPD that that I tried to get and was just shut down. Um, I luckily was able to take a look at some stuff before they hit it. This document on. Um, that uh, that you provided that uh, that case file number. What would happen if an FBI agent would uh, say subpoena something like that, or request to get a copy of that, or call you up to get a copy of that? Is LAPD going to dispute that because it's under seal? I, I don't know, but it's all there. It's all there yeah. for the taking. But God knows yeah. if they're going to run into some roadblocks that uh, you know. I never knew that. I, I never envisioned that I would run into. Um, the roadblocks that I would run, that I did run into, and 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 what and what lengths they went to to try to discredit me and discredit the FBI. The problem is, is everything's documented, so they're wrong. Outside of Perry and and this, you know, legal maneuvering that he's doing in your in your heart of hearts, is there anyone that currently exists? That outside of the actual shooter coming forward and saying, I did this, is there an individual that could come forth that you feel would, 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 it would be sort of, that would be it, you know, that, that would, would finally, the LAPD could not deny it. They could not discredit it. If you, if you look like if Suge was to come out and say, 
this is what I did. Do you even think they'd accept that at this point? I'm not sure they would, actually. I mean, Shug would only be doing that if he was getting something for it. So whatever his deal would be, I mean, Shug would do that if it was going to get him out of prison. He wouldn't do it for any, you know, he'd have to clear his conscience or anything like that. You know, I, you know, there, there are some stones that still could be turned over, maybe. I mean, as, as Phil was talking, I was thinking, you know, the guy, the U.S. attorney who received the FBI's request to prosecute the case based on Phil's investigation. So I found the guy. He was in, he'd been the, the, you know, assistant U.S. attorney on this, assigned to this case at the time. He's now a lawyer in private practice in L.A. So when I got him on the phone, I told him what I was calling about. I mean, I could literally hear the guy shitting a brick. He was just in such stress. And finally, he said, I can't talk about it on the phone, you know, but you've got to send me anything in email. So I sent him all, a list of all my questions, what I knew, you know, uh, about the case and him in email. And he refused to reply and wouldn't ever take my calls again. And, but if somebody could squeeze the truth out of that guy about how, how and who uh, uh, convinced him that uh, he couldn't, uh, prosecute this case, because as Phil probably already said, and, and Phil's the one who told me, this, this uh, U.S. attorney, you know, he did not, he, he, typically U.S. attorneys, almost always, U.S. attorneys always, actually, U.S. attorneys have to explain why they're rejecting a case from the FBI. They have to write a letter of declination laying out why. This is the only case I know where no letter of declination was ever provided. So the U.S. attorney's office, and that person in particular, um, know something about how this case got shut down and what who pulled what powers pulled those strings, and that might lead to something. Yeah, I, I continue to be surprised of just you know, every time I sit down to like reread this stuff and relook at this stuff of how fucked up it is and how much of this exists. It's it's it's, and I, I think sadly enough for me that the, as the years go on, I think it's getting lost and lost and and just everything else. And and I hope that's not the case, but I don't know. I I just feel with the, the the work you've done alone um and the stuff that exists it's it's mind blowing that you just can't something the 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 needle just can't seem to fucking move look at me i've never i've never been as frustrated by anything in my entire career you know it it's and it it does it absolutely befuddles me it astounds me you know i mean you know when dead wrong was published i figured there were like 10 things and that the la times would have to put on the front page because they were that you know they, they were revelations that started but the LA Times, you know, completely ignored the book. And I don't think any, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still, and of course, so did the law enforcement agencies in LA. So, like I said, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's just one avenue left, and you know, I, you know, we're all hoping that you know, Barry Sanders and crew can, you know, find a way. Yeah. The anger of Phil Carson and the frustration of Randall Sullivan is palpable on this audio. See, to go down into the dark caverns of this case is to see in printed form actual evidence, documentation, and proof in plain sight that the LAPD not only covered up this crime, they did it right in front of everyone's face. The mechanisms of power in place that could have stopped this, like the LA Times or the United States Attorney in Los Angeles, all bowed down to the power of the almighty LAPD. I'm not a pessimist by nature. But let me be clear about a few things. No one inside hip-hop journalism has cared to look into the information Phil has, or Randall has, or I have. The attempts on my behalf to get anyone to pay attention has been an uphill battle. I have FBI files, LAPD files. I have files that show clear as day that LAPD cops were involved in the murder of Biggie. And you know what? Right now, I don't think anyone cares. As a country... We've had a reckoning around police corruption, criminal justice, defund the police. Yet, the biggest police cover-up by the biggest police agency in America is largely ignored as it relates to a global hip-hop superstar. As Randall explained towards the end, there's a narrow path that the family of Biggie and Perry Sanders have to get this case refiled against the city of Los Angeles. And that looks like a long shot. The FBI in Los Angeles also has the power to do something. But again, they alone can't bring a case. 
they would once again need the support of the U.S. attorney or a young prosecutor who maybe believes in justice. If not, all the information, all the evidence will remain in a vault somewhere at the LAPD, locked away. Most likely, at some point, to be forgotten. It's time for one of the biggest hiring events of the year. On September 22nd, Amazon Warehouse Hiring Day will be in your area to showcase all of the things you can get from a warehouse job. There will be swag, a photo booth, giveaways, and more. Plus, learn about the work, competitive pay, and great benefits. You can even get a job offer on the spot. To find a hiring event close to you, visit Amazon.com slash hiring day. That's Amazon.com slash hiring day. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. 